Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. This is episode number 114, 114. And as always, if you have questions or comments, you can send them to me or you can leave them on the Podbean comments section and we'll get to them in the next podcast. Uh, If you want to send it to me, it's kbmakel at aol.com k-b-m-a-k-e-l at aol.com so this time we're not going to spend a whole lot of time got a whole bunch of questions and we're not going to spend a whole time bunch of time on the the goofy politics just a few just a few quick words i will say that i think that uh, you know we have probably weathered quite a bit of the storm um traditionally Nobody during an election year, even the quote off-year elections like we have coming up, passes a whole lot of uh, um, stuff that can be used against them. Um, so gun control bills and some of these other controversial things are not going to probably get through the Congress. Nobody wants to deal with that till after the election because uh, they don't want it to affect the potential results. Democrats learned that in 1994 when they pushed through the ridiculous assault weapons ban and uh it came back and they wound up losing the house of representatives for the first time since the early 1950s so they uh definitely have learned that lesson and we probably won't see that again state legislatures who who knows but uh i think you know we're just now cresting that part so that it's just another year until the uh oh we get some midterm elections and hopefully uh uh Flip, flip-flop a few seats back to where they belong. So that's the that's the political news. I wanted to talk about, we took out the Ruger Wrangler and fired it. Uh, what a nice little gun. Um, I know I've talked about this before, but shoots very, very well. It uh, is quite, it's reasonably accurate. You know, it's a, it's a single-action gun, so it has... A single action revolver in the Western style has that kind of the groove down the the center of the top strap and then the uh, um, the sight that falls into that groove front sight that goes into that groove so it's not a target gun but you know it does have quite a bit um, my only criticism would be uh, that the and I really like the color of the Cerakote it's kind of got the bronze Cerakote and you know in the in the bright sun that bronze cerakote is a little harder to see than probably black the black would be if the frame color and front sight were black instead of bronze but that's a small gripe uh it's a good gun very very durable very very well put together uh i think it's a i think it's a real winner i mean and it's again it's the $200 gun that you can actually take out and use as opposed to the $600 gun that the minute you wear some of the bluing off it you you feel like uh, you feel terrible because the value of it is has gone down this gun is designed to be used and it's really not going to lose that much value if it, if it gets a little worn so very very good gun and um, DeSantis makes a great ambi holster for it you know, it kind of Western looking, not not real traditional, but it's it's kind of Western looking, fit good on a leather belt, and it's just a nice nice little package. Um, you know, it's hard to find good holsters anymore. You know, if you're like me, especially, and you like a lot of the classic guns, you know, they don't make <laughs> they don't make holsters for a Colt Diamondback anymore. Uh, they're probably making some for pythons now, but because the python has been reintroduced, but. You know a lot of the Smith and Wesson K frames and you know the L frames and a lot of the lot of the guns that were big 30 and 40 years ago and even farther back uh, you just can't get a holster for nobody nobody makes them anymore so so going the custom route can can definitely uh, run you into some bucks if, even if they have the the molds you know a lot of the holster makers they have a kind of a mold of a gun of a certain model and barrel length so that they can, they can fashion the holster you know and uh you know i don't even know if a lot of these uh holster makers even have would, would even would one even have a colt diamondback the the you know kind of lead mold that it or, or metal mold of of the gun so they could fashion 
fashion the holster. So I don't know. I don't even know if they have those anymore. Certainly a lot of the, you know, Colt official police with a, you know, four inch barrel. Who knows? Who knows? But, um, yeah, so it's, it's definitely a challenge. But, you know, custom holster, holster makers can still, you know, you can still get some great uh, stuff from them. El Paso Saddlery has always been a big, a big winner. They're great. And they actually kind of make their stuff to order they don't have a lot of it sitting on the shelf so you know they're absolutely um and i'm sure some of the other ones are the same way but it will cost you it will cost you um anyway it's so it's nice to see that somebody is offering a holster for the wrangler it's it's a good gun and it's it's a good holster and it's proportioned just right and the maker is desantis so and they've they've been around forever they've they've been around a long time they i think they made a lot of police stuff back in the day and and now they but they still make quality leather holsters. to me leather is just the only way to go it's my favorite material for a holster i like the way it feels i like the way it smells i like everything about a leather holster so um you know i definitely am a leather holster guy so um you know anything and, and guns that don't respond well to leather i don't really care for that much um i'm getting kind of used to kai you know it's a kydex yeah kydex used a used a kydex kind of holster in in iraq and it's very good you know it does what it's supposed to do and um i also had a, a galco shoulder holster from my m9 still have it as a matter of fact very cool very nice shoulder holster to have um of course we had to get the vertical one because the horizontal one the muzzle of course sweeps everybody behind you so we the stipulation was if you got one of these it had to be vertical so so the vertical one is what i have and uh very good eh, for beretta excellent you know and the beretta is still a credible a credible uh, good street gun you know it's still a good gun to have so i uh, really like it okay well we've we've burned a little bit of time talking about that not really any gun culture stuff that that uh really stands out at me i just really you know the podcasts from all the gun people out there you know the the one thing we could talk and we could talk about this i don't like the ones that are jv locker rooms okay the the potty humor the all that nonsense they're the ones that scream about, you know, how fuddy the boomers are, but they're the ones, you know, really kind of kind of doing that. Don't really care for that. I don't really care for, you know, the they need new content, so what they wind up talking about is every new little gizzy-mabob that can go on an AR that's, you know, frankly just very boring. I mean, you know, how how many muzzle brakes and compensators do you have i mean are you actually going to go out and buy have 20 of these things to figure out which is the best one when you know you might not be able to tell any difference between them except how they look and and maybe that's the uh maybe that's a point just choose the one that looks the coolest and and go with that so i'm really kind of you know i'm really kind of burned out on those just not that interested uh the sky is falling second amendment ones you know where oh the massachusetts house of of um, delegates or whatever whatever nonsense it is she just introduced a bill that you know blah 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 and, and you know you, you hear about these things and you know they, they try to get you into this you know worrisome turmoil over it and then then you never hear anything from it again you find out it was a bill that was introduced that just gets shelved because Again, we're approaching the season where nobody really wants to shoot themselves in the foot figuratively by passing a gun control bill that's going to piss everybody off, especially this day and age. I don't know if it's true, but there is some postulation that essentially there are so many new gun owners out there that they've there are gun-owning Democrats and progressives. Now, I don't know that that is how true that is. I don't know. And so it'll be interesting to see. And the, the the theory of this is is that it's becoming less a partisan bill because there's now more 
gun owner the, the gun ownership has a broader political spectrum it's not just the the old right wing white guy you know wearing the wearing the old baseball cap and and the the checkered shirt and chewing tobacco and and you know all that all those stereotypes that they try to pin on us um you know graduated from the eighth grade you know after four tries you know that's just, that's the stuff they want to say about us but now there are gun owners who are you know urban lawyers and doctors and all kinds of people who you normally wouldn't have thought would be a gun owner but you know the 2020 summer of love um you know there's it's the old adage there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole or a liberal in a riot you know um that that's just kind of the thing there are a lot of people who did not like what they saw they did not like what they saw and you know regardless of what what your political kind of beliefs are unless you're a super hardcore radical cheering on these these mobs um i think everybody had some concern for security for themselves their home their family and and all that so gun control isn't the hot issue that people thought it was that doesn't mean though they're not going to go out after after ar pistols and braces and and all that kind of stuff uh, that's still a bridge to go because i don't think a lot of you know john q public was uh was out there buying a whole lot of that they may have bought some of it but you know that that corner has yet to be turned i believe another thing that i cannot stand and i just cannot stand this is and it's been around for a while is when i want gun content i want gun content and that's usually in advertising so when someone is trying to sell me a product having a girl in a bikini holding it does not induce me to buy it in fact i usually say a this is cheap and cheesy and they're really going to this lowest common denominator to try to appeal make this product appealing and number two i think why are they trying to distract me what is wrong with this thing that they're trying to conceal by having a model in a bikini stand there and it's not untoward you know i realize fashion models hey they you know victoria's secret all these people make money by by posing in suggestive clothing or bathing suits and and all that and i realize they got to make a living too you know so that's that's okay but i really don't like seeing it i never thought that the dylan blue press was a particularly good idea um that's the kind of thing your wife kind of picks that up and says hey what what is this you know it, it just gives a bad impression to the whole hobby because the whole hobby is not oriented like that at all in fact um most of the clothing and accessories and things that are sold um and a lot of them women use when you see a woman out on the range there's they're usually in you know the kind of appropriate attire that well as a matter of fact i can say they're always in appropriate attire for that activity you know it's usually a long sleeve shirt it's usually a hat sunglasses you know and and pants that that uh, cargo pants you know tactical type type pants a lot of women dress like that on ranges because that is the practical clothing i have yet to see people in a bikini uh or or something else you know i mean it just that just you don't see that out of ranges you see people dressed very practically either in everyday clothes or some range specific clothes especially if they're going to get down and fire prone or something else uh using the same shoot type of shooting jackets and everything else it's not a it's not a fashion show and it's not you're not out there looking to cheerleaders so um I don't really care for that kind of advertising. I wish it would just go away, to be honest with you. But it it appears to it went away for a while, and now it appears to be kind of creeping back in. And I don't I don't really care for it. So there's a there's some funny old opinion for you. Okay. Oh man, let's see. Here are as I as I get my scratchy notes here. We're going to go straight into questions and answers. So we've actually covered a little bit of the politics, a little bit of the gun culture. Now it's questions and answers. And there's there's a bunch of them here. And some of these we've actually talked a little bit about before, but they're, they're, the questions are just different enough maybe so that uh, we can talk about them again. 
All right, what is the most underrated modern military rifle cartridge? And first of all, there are not that many modern ones out there. Um, if I had to go, I mean, if I had to say, I don't think 5.56 is underrated. I think it's, you know, widely used and everybody knows its capabilities, so it's not overrated or underrated. 7.62 NATO is, is pretty legendary, so it's not underrated. 7.62 by 39 is certainly legendary. It's not underrated. I would have to go, and, and I don't know, I know the Chinese have, what, a 6.7 or something, and the North Koreans have got, or a 5.7, whatever that all that is. Um, those things are, are out there. Nobody really knows that much about them or cares. So there you go. So that leaves us down to what I think the most underrated modern military cartridge is. As I think my way through this is uh, 545 by 39. Excellent cartridge does exactly what it's supposed to do. It was sort of a victim of, of timing. Um, came in about 15 years before the uh, the fall of the the Soviet Empire, so they never completely converted to it, and their allies certainly didn't. So it just sort of got out there. But it's a very excellent cartridge. Germans actually even made some, uh, what did they call them, SSG somethings. Um, I know, but I can't remember it right now. But they actually made a, um, um, that their border police used. It was a bolt action, you know, sniper, quote unquote, rifle. Rifle with a, you know, five or six power scope on the top and that kind of thing. So, uh, and that was, you know, 70s, 80s, probably technology. So that's what those were. May have been called an SSG 97. I don't know. I think that, that kind of sticks in my mind. But it's a good little cartridge. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. What I like about it is the bullets are very long. So, you know, with some modern development, there could be something interesting come come out of that. You know, a very long 22 that would be very accurate, move at very comparatively high speed. Could be, could be a fairly interesting cartridge. So, um, I think that... Uh, I think that definitely there could be some room there. Uh, it's never going to come to its full potential in an AK because the AK has, you know, the kind of the tangent sights that are, in in some ways, they've been described as kind of pistol sights, and they all kind of almost are, but they're they're effective out, you know, to the to the range of the of the rifle, uh, but they're not precision sights, and they're not as good as U.S. military sights. So. Um, in my opinion, in my opinion. So anyway, it'll never come to its uh, its full potential in the AK-74, but it might become something if if somebody actually puts it in a different different platform. I believe there were some 5.45 ARs made at one time, probably when there was cheap 5.45 ammo. Uh, you know, that, of course, begs the question why. I don't think that the two cartridges are different enough in a intermediate cartridge fighting rifle to make a difference, but who knows. But as maybe a varmint cartridge or maybe even some sort of a precision cartridge might, might prove interesting, might prove very interesting. From that, we go to the other end of the spectrum here. What's the use for the 9x39 comblock cartridge? And I'm not sure that that's called a comblock cartridge. I think that's actually just the 9x39. And, and that was basically designed to be a subsonic kind of a... The, its performance is a little different, but it was... And, and the caliber is a lot different, but it was designed to do the same thing that the 300 Blackout did, which is, um, you know, offer you a suppressed... A subsonic suppressed load for an AK-style rifle. Okay. Um, 
I would love to have one just to play with because I think it's cool because I like I like big thumpy <laughs> thump rifle cartridges and I think that had, probably has some pretty good thump behind it so it's kind of a cool cartridge it'd be it'd be fun to uh, fun to experiment with but I think it was designed really for suppressed work out of shorter barrel guns so there you go that's what it's used for um, there was some Tula ammo for sale for that a while ago and of course that dried up almost immediately so I don't know where you get would get ammo for that and um, you might actually have to make it by finding brass cased 762 by 39 and pulling the bullet necking it up and going through that whole rigmarole <laughs> which you know just on the surface does not sound fun so might have to go through all that to uh, to get some ammo for it okay what are the best powders for hand loading rifle and pistol uh, number one depending on the cartridge and depending on its use uh, for a lot of older cartridges black powder works just fine so black powder is a good one um, for rifle the powder I use the most I'm just because there's so many powders and so many different preferences I could just give you my little tiny take on it I'll, I use accurate arms 2520 because I can use it in 30 out 6 762 NATO and 556 which are three cartridges that I load the most as far as rifle cartridges go um, so other rifle powders I use uh, I don't really like the stick powders I've gone through all those uh, I don't like the way they meter so I like the ball powder and so I just use those um, unique which is thought of as a pistol powder but it can be used for shotgun pistol or rifle for cast bullet loads out of say something like a 3030 um, or some I've got a seven millimeter rolling block and you know in, in the collection of not very valuable and not not really very practical or interesting guns um, you know that 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 standard cast bullet load behind a, a cast rifle bullet 10 grains of unique will push it out and and you can hit something with it you know out to about 100 yards it's good I think I think I tried some of that in my crag at 200 yards and, and wasn't close to anything so uh, depends a lot on the bullet and I, I don't know it's it's always hard pushing even a gas check cast bullet fast enough so that you've got a decent trajectory beyond a hundred yards just the way it kind of is in a in a modern bottleneck kind of kind of cartridge the uh, the old black powder cartridges work work differently they're most mostly straight walled and have a pretty uh, you know large capacity for the black powder so they all they all work a little bit they work a little bit differently and so cast bullets work usually exceptionally well in those uh, for pistol pistol uh, I have always used Winchester 231 and it's it's the same powder HP 38 those are those are great powders um, I do you know for 9 millimeter 45 38 special they're great um, for the bigger cartridges I like unique again for magnum cartridges 296 and that, that's kind of what I've been using that's kind of what I use again I like the ones that meter well out of a um, out of a powder measure I mean that to me is the biggest biggest deal used to use bullseye a little bit uh, frankly it wasn't different enough from two 231 is much more versatile and it, it does the same thing a uh, trail boss is another cool pistol uh, um, powder um, you know I used to think it was just kind of uh, um, basically some BS cowboy gamer powder but it's actually pretty good for low lower power pistol uh, loads what I like about it is it uses up a lot of the case and when you're talking about 45 cold or even 45 auto rim and and some and 44 special um, 3840 it's nice to use up a lot of that a lot of that capacity in there so um, not only does it help you by 
you won't have a double charge because it'll spill out all over the place. But I think it just very consistently, you know, it, there's there's a lot less variable about where the powder is inside that cavernous cartridge. It was probably designed for black powder, so they work out work out really well. So um, I really like those. So those are the ones I use. Oh, next question, and this is all related, which is kind of nice. Do you think that hand loading and bullet casting will experience a resurgence? Um, well, it's it's far from it's far from dying. It's far from being gone. It's it's um, it's always kind of been around. But I think newer shooters will, and and people who've technically kind of thumbed their nose at it at the past, if you shoot a lot of nine millimeter and you can buy seven or eight dollar Tula ammo. Um, it, hand loading makes no sense. I mean, it makes no sense to invest in the equipment and turn all the rest of it. It's not worth it if you can get cheap ammo. But now that the era of cheap ammo is at least temporarily gone, um, I think a lot of people will be looking at it and saying, you know, this isn't a bad thing at all. This is actually a good alternative. I mean, uh, you know, going back to when I was a teenager about a million years ago, uh, the older guys would, you know, if they shot rifle, they would shoot a cast bullet out of a thirty out six, and then they were shooting at a hundred yards. Because um, a lot of ranges back then, especially around urban areas, were hundred yards is as far as you can go. Um, it's been comparatively recently that they've really stretched a lot out. Um, but anyway, they would they would shoot, you know, cast pistol bullets and cast rifle bullets, and you know. These were older guys, probably retired and on a fixed income, so money mattered, and they had the extra time to do it. I think people are going to make a choice and say, "I will invest the time and equipment to do this," because they just got an 18-month lesson on what no ammo looks like, and I don't think a lot of people were really happy with that. So I think I think people are going to go back into certainly hand loading. And I think bullet casting is is another route that uh, you can get down. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than hey, I got primers, I got powder, I got cases, but gee, it's a 14 to 16 week wait for me to get cast bullets from my favorite supplier. And that happened to me. I mean, I was like, whoa, I can't get bullets from from this guy. I'm going to have to break out my casting stuff and, and uh, cast my own. And you know what? You do it, and, and uh, that's that's what you have to do. But, um, you know, we, we just learned about supply chains and all the rest of it. And even though we're getting back to normal now, you know, the sad truth is we're probably one bad law or one, one police shooting or one other incident away from this stuff becoming unobtainium again and uh, anything you can do to uh, essentially you know mitigate that is something that's uh, well worth doing I think that's absolutely well worth doing so yes it will come back um, Lee equipment is good equipment it's you know you have to be careful with um, both casting and loading equipment most of it was designed back in the 40s and 50s for comparatively low volume shooters when when going to the range and shooting 50 rounds was a big deal that was a big deal and um, that was a lot considered a lot of shooting um, so a lot of that equipment the single stage press the you know single mold single cavity mold and and some of this other stuff was really designed around that kind of shooting and uh, it's not very time efficient same thing with the luber sizers you know one goes in and you gotta you know crank that little thing and force the uh, lubricant into the grooves well a lot of people now are just tumble lubing or are going to go to um, powder coating bullets because you can do 300 bullets in the time that you could do 40 bullets when you're using the older equipment so when you look at that look at how much time it's really going to take you uh, not just the price tag you go with the lowest price tag you're going to invest more labor higher price tag you will probably have 
um, more efficient equipment. So that's it. Okay, and again, another connected question. Will hand loading bring back classic revolver cartridges like the 38 Special, 44 Special, etc.? It's hard to say. Um, I think revolvers are actually kind of making a collectability. They're, they're certainly still very desirable. Uh, I think, though, that the new Python, the new Anaconda, and some of these other guns that have been kind of reintroduced, Kimber's now making revolvers, Ruger, of course, always had, Smith & Wesson always has. Um, these, these new revolvers are generating some interest. So I think hand-loading goes very well with revolver cartridges. Straight walled cartridges are simple, forgiving, and um, very, very good. And, you know, one of the things that they never really talk about is the safety margin. And if you're loading, if you're loading 38 specials and firing them in a 357 revolver, um, you know, you have a little bit of extra safety margin there because the, these are not magnum loads you're shooting through there. So, um, you know there is an extra strength and safety margin so that's always a nice thing that's always a super nice thing um, yes but I think they will there'll be an impact but it won't be a Copernican shift where everyone is run throwing their their semi-automatics out the window and and going back to revolvers but I think revolve the revolver market will slowly increase its market share until it reaches an equilibrium point whatever that is and and uh, but there will definitely be more revolvers out there and people will be hand loading for them definitely okay well, this is an interesting question which version of the ar-15 is in your opinion the best the a1 the a2 the m4 or the later free foot load versions and what about the what would stoner do rifle okay I think for uh, how can I put this let me think my way through this for most uses an a1 style rifle is, is ideal where it falls a little short is the pencil barrel is not since it's not free floated it is more susceptible to some pressures that are in the uh, the handguards and all that and it doesn't mount an optic as easily as a flat top does but general act unless you're doing very precise accuracy like long-range varmint hunting or something it will serve you very very well and in fact it's a great hard-hitting lightweight rifle and I really like it as a matter of fact it's it's kind of the one I prefer the most. The A2, and, and also realize that the twist in most of those are is 1 in 12, although you can get pencil barrels that are 1 in 7, but the 1 in 12 does not stabilize the longer bullets. You know, 75, even I think 69, 75, and 77 grain bullets are, are not going to shoot well in it. So, uh, the A2 can shoot those quite well. It is a larger, more ponderous, heavier rifle. Um, but it, it does perform exceptionally well, like it. M4 is a great rifle with a flat top. It, it really, um, you know, you, it's so modular as far as what kind of scope you can put on it. It's very easy handling. It's really nice getting in and out of vehicles with an M4 because, you know, you don't lose that fraction of a second that you might need. So that that's one of the reasons that it's so popular. Uh, the later versions with, you know, they're, they're kind of the flat top with maybe a 20-inch barrel and free, free float handguards. Those seem to be all the rage. Um, I think they're very good, very accurate. Um, they give you target rifle or varmint rifle accuracy, so they're 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 good. I don't know that we all need that, but that's that's it. Um, yeah, so those are really good. What would Stoner do? I have no real opinion on. I don't like polymer lowers. I don't like the big 
cast, buttstock, lower. I don't like using all lightweight components because they're already lightweight rifles. It's like, you know, diet non-alcoholic beer, you know? I mean, it's it's like, well, what am I really drinking at at the end of at the end of the day, what are you really carrying around? And you're carrying around a rifle that's got all everything on it lightweight. But it was lightweight to begin with. With standard components, it's lightweight. So, okay, it's lighter weight. Um, is it enough to matter? To some people, I'm sure it is, but to me, it is not. So I have no interest in it. That's the way it goes. Again, we've got another oldie but goodie sent here. Um, will the 7.62 NATO ever make a comeback as a service rifle round? The answer to that is very quick and brief. No, it will not. Um, and it's not the fault of the cartridge. Cartridge does everything it was designed to do. It's 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 not a failure in any in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the things that mitigate against it are several. There's several things, and we've we kind of talked about these before. One is there's no military organization going to go back and say, you know, 30 or 40 years ago we had 7.62 NATO rifles, then we went to the intermediate cartridge. And now we're going to go back. No, they, military organizations don't go back. They might keep the older equipment and still use it and just not talk about it much, but they, they will never go back and readopt it. The other thing is uh, 7.62 NATO is, what is that? That came out in 1954. So that is, um, what, 67 years old? Yeah, 67 years old. And they're not going to go back. And by the time they would be tested, readopted, and everything, we're looking at 70, 75 year old technology. They're not going to go back. You know, 3040 Crag was a great round. 7.65 by uh, 53 Argentine, a great round. But nobody 40 or 50 years later is going to go back and adopt it. They just don't do that. So. No, it won't. The other things that mitigate against it is, as good as the performance of it is, it is a heavy cartridge, and you cannot carry as large a basic load, and you must carry a um, a larger weapon. You got to carry a larger weapon, and I think when the special forces, U.S. special forces, I can't remember if it was Iraq or Afghanistan, they were carrying around Scar 17s. They said. Everything about this is great, except this thing weighs a ton and it's big. Um, and, and you're just not going to make a small, lightweight 7.62 NATO rifle, unless you call it the AR-10, which was a good, good rifle. But you know, nobody's nobody's going that way. Uh, obviously, the increased recoil as you get, I'll put this, a more diverse armed forces, meaning a lot more females and then maybe people of smaller stature. It's a, it's a punishing, much more punishing round of fire than 5.56. And, um, you know, just the cost of the ammo. Just, you know, even look at the civilian side. Uh, go into, now that we have places that have ammo, uh, go in and um, price 20 cartridges of, you know, 5.56 and go price 20 cartridges of uh, 7.62 NATO. Big, big countries or countries have to do the same thing. You know, if you've got X amount of dollars, you're going to spend on small arms ammo. It almost makes the decision for you that you're going to buy the smaller one. Because you're probably going to be buying that 7.62 NATO for your machine guns anyway. Because most countries, Western countries anyway, still have machine guns in 7.62 NATO because their performance is so outstanding. And um, so they keep it for that. But they can realize substantial savings in money and weight and logistics and everything else, plus being easier to shoot for a lot of lot of soldiers who are not gun savvy or have a lot of gun training. It's a lot easier to shoot, so a lot easier to train troops on. So that's why it'll never come back. With all that being said, it will survive as a sniper rifle round because face it at most distances where you can see and identify a target in normal terrain not afghanistan and to a slightly lesser degree iraq where you can see out 
2,000 yards. But in most places where you can see maybe four to 600 yards and get positive ID on an enemy, uh, 762 NATO is an excellent cartridge. Excellent cartridge. There's a lot of them around. A lot of the people who do that kind of precision rifle shooting are used to it. Um, it's excellent for that. And, and in fact, you know, you can even get away with using ball ammunition in some of these rifles that will uh, reach out and touch someone. You know, you can even get away with that because most U.S. ammo and most NATO ammo is manufactured to a very high standard. And in fact, it would probably be a misnomer to call it match ammo, but the ball ammo produced by NATO countries is pretty close to match standards. So you can fire that in a 7.62 NATO rifle, say a bolt gun, say a, a an M40 or an M24 or, you know, a civilian rifle styled on that and get excellent accuracy. Um, and then, of course, it even gets better with the specialized ammunition. So uh, you do get you do get a, a lot of benefit from it, but it'll never come back as a uh, standard service rifle round. It's just too big, too powerful, too expensive. And the guns for it are too big, too powerful, probably too expensive, and uh, a, a bit un, just a bit unwieldy. So that's what that is. I think we've talked about that before, but it's good to kind of go over it. Ooh, is full auto for police and soldiers all it's cracked up to be? It seems wasteful. Um, I don't know why police want full auto, but apparently some of them do. Um, and, and there is a... The reason full auto is valuable is at a certain point you want to have fire superiority, which means more rounds are going from you towards the bad people than are coming back at you. That's fire superiority. When you've reached that, when you've crossed that threshold, all of a sudden they're pinned down and you can now, you can now maneuver on them. Uh, police, I don't know that they need to do that. I'm not a police expert, so I will leave that to them. With the military, that's how that is used. Um, but the debits for full auto for everyone are, are well known. Number one, there's a lot of wild shooting, which in a police, wild shooting, I mean, um, there's a lot of bullets that are the second, third, fourth, and fifth, and sixth, and seventh bullet that are leaving the gun are not nearly as well aimed and have been subjected to the recoil of the previous rounds which may have moved the gun so that you have what what in the military we call the old cone of fire uh, which is not precise and when you have a lot of civilians potentially around that is a huge liability so I think that's a, a huge challenge for police for the military it's the same thing it's it's um, you know, not only is it not a real precise method of shooting, which is which is fine, but when you're in places like Iraq where you got these civilians everywhere, uh, you have to be kind of judicious because you don't want you you certainly don't want to do that. You certainly don't want to slaughter these guys out of hand. Uh, the next thing that's very very important is. Uh, Oh, well, you got the cone of fire. The other, the other thing that happens is, it's a great way to turn a 30-shot weapon into a five-shot weapon, which means you have five squirts and you're empty. You have to weigh that. Were your bullet? How effective are your bullets? And you know, is the time you're spending reloading, is the heat that you're generating on your weapon, is it all worth that, or is being in the semi-automatic mode? Um, taking rapid, more precise shots, a better, better option, and that's it. That's usually a tactical consideration. I can tell you the latter is usually much better. And as much maligned as it is, the three-shot burst is an excellent feature. A lot of it's it's out of fashion now, but at least it was an excellent feature, so that you really had to be more carefully aiming your your. Uh, um, your weapon and it, it was a lot easier to deal with than just the magazine what turned out to be the magazine dumps of um, 5.56 at a target so yeah full auto is not what it's cracked up to be I think a lot of civilian owners of full auto 
they take it out and they go, wow, gee willikers, this is great. They fire, fire. You know, it, it, it's that it's that whole thing of, hey, I took it out three times this year and fired it. And it was great, great. The next year they take it out twice. The year after that they take it out once. The next year they don't take it out at all. Then the year after that they might take it out once. Then for two years they don't take it out. It's, it's one of those things of, once the novelty starts to wear off and the expense starts to kick in you sit there and you go yeah this is great but you know kind of been there done that a lot of a lot of cool to own guns have that not just not just full auto think of these guys with the semi-automatic machine guns you know i mean you can sit behind the semi-automatic 1919 and crank away but um you know after you do that a couple times are you is that something you're going to do twice a month no that's something you do once then you do it again a little while later then you do it maybe a third time in that first year and then it, it kind of goes down because you're it's expensive you're not really doing marksmanship same thing it's even worse with like the uh, uh semi-automatic m250 cals and all that it, you know it's what seems like a great idea all of a sudden the practicality of all of that kicks in and uh, especially when you're talking about rifle caliber and larger machine guns or even the semi-automatic derivatives thereof um, cleaning those things is i mean the semi-automatic 50 caliber you know that's a 75 80 pound gun and it is not simple to take apart and put back together it's it's just not so um you know, you, you don't just bring that back, toss it in your gun safe, and say, I'll clean it tomorrow. You're probably going to be cleaning that the next next three days. So <laughs> that's that's another uh, reason why some of that stuff, Gatlings, would, would fall into that. You know, all these, some of these very cool guns, the uh, the upkeep, the maintenance, and the just the practicality of moving them around is, is going to be quite a bit different than uh, what the owners probably imagined when they first embarked on, on getting something like that. Okay, here's a hunting question. What is the largest, most powerful, but practical rifle cartridge for hunting in North America? Okay, I don't, I don't really do a lot of hunting, of, and I don't hunt anything big, so I'm a terrible person to ask this of I would say that my two choices would be uh, 30-06 and 300 Magnum I mean I can't think of anything on the continent that a 300 Magnum won't handle and I suppose you could you could shoot smaller deer with it probably mess them up quite a bit I think 30-06 is probably a more practical choice but um, a 300 Magnum I mean you can kill grizzly bears with 300 Magnums so um, I guess that's a top end. You can figure what would it take to bring down a grizzly bear or a polar bear. I think you could certainly go larger, but I think the largest, most practical one. And the nice part about a 300 Magnum is you can find that ammunition a lot of places where you're not going to find something larger. Um, you know, none of the Weatherby rounds, I you just don't see those. I mean so do the i don't even know they make still make guns for those i suppose they do on a custom basis but uh, you know so a lot of these bigger cartridges you know you just don't see them you know you did see some in cabela's you know the 338 lapua and all that but i'm not sure that's a practical hunting round that's really a great long range round and i'm sure there are people who hunt with it but they would probably be just as well served with a 300 magnum so if it were me and and in fact if you listen to the laborious 1917 rifle project where i i basically was given a whole bunch of parts that used to be a rifle that were sporterized beyond any any hope of restoration for a military rifle and I put it together as, as basically a sporter, and it's a 30 out six. And hey, you know, it's not it's not exceptionally pretty, and it's not, but it's every bit functional. And if a polar bear was trying to rip my door off, um, I think that that could take care of business. So there you go. Ooh, you mentioned the 40 Smith and Wesson was a snub nose revolver. Oh, as a snub nose revolver cartridge as a way to save the cartridge from from becoming unpopular 
Are there any other which could be saved the same way? Yeah, I did. I mentioned last podcast that, hey, you know, five round 40 Smith & Wesson snub nose if you live in California or New York or Massachusetts or any of those other occupied states, um, that'd be a really good gun to have. I mean, a really good gun to have. And, uh, you know, so I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, of a really kind of a more modern... You know, obsolete cartridges are always going to kind of be around, even as a hand-loading proposition, because there are guns made for them, you know. So it makes no sense to have a 762 by 25 revolver. I would just, somehow that doesn't sound very appealing to me. So I don't think he could save that one. Uh, 45 gap. I don't know. The problem with a 45 is usually if you dimension a revolver, for the muzzle and a cylinder for 45 caliber, the length of the case between 45 gap and 45 ACP won't matter. But I guess you could say if you could shorten the if you could shorten the um, cylinder and go five shots, you could make a nice trail gun for 45 gap. Again, I'd much rather have it in 45 ACP, but that's just me. But you could do that. You could do that. That would give it. That would give it something. That would be a nice little, nice little gun. Um, again, in a place where you know you don't want to get into trouble with magazines. Um, you want a kind of a smaller gun. If you if you could dimension it right, and nobody would ever put the effort into this because it's just not worth it. They'd never put the effort in, especially if you've got a forty Smith and Wesson alternative which is, sounds like a better alternative but yeah you could you could go with a five shot 45 gap and you know nobody buy it but make a great collector's item so yeah that would be um, that would be about the end of that right there okay i don't I, i'm just trying to think I'm, there's not really any cartridge I can think of that's becoming or is obsolete that could come back as a revolver cartridge other than 40 Smith & Wesson. 10 millimeters already done it. Smith & Wesson 610. Uh, guy I know, he um, as a matter of fact, he is the proprietor of Cavalry Ammunition, a great place to buy ammunition. Compared to compared to stuff you see in stores, his prices are are pretty good and he's got a lot of stuff that uh, you can't find on the shelves right now so if you need 30 40 crag if you need he's got seven millimeter mauser 4570 he's got a lot of stuff that's not on the shelves so cavalryammunition.com cavalryammunition.com but um he's got a 610 revolver you know it's a smith and wesson think it's an end frame if I remember right 10 millimeter great revolver you know not I mean as a matter of fact it was a it was an awesome bowling pin shooting gun just awesome and the 10 millimeter round is a very nice revolver round and it had the feel you know hey you can do those moon clips in it and and all that and you know what that's gonna save some cartridges because you know, you can 3D print any kind of moon clip you want, really. So as long as the revolver has been relieved so that you can you can do all that, um, you can have you can have moon clips and they're gonna be easy to make because guys are gonna 3D print them and you should use them a couple of, maybe even something you just use and you don't even try to reuse it. You just, when you want to reload your brass, you just break the clip and take them out of there because you can print 3D print these things by the hundreds. So why would you even bother trying to reuse it and, and worry about if it's um, cracked or whatever? So pretty interesting. The 3D printing might come in very handy there. Ooh, if you could have dinner with one deceased gun writer or inventor, who would it be? So, I think about this. I'm thinking Browning, Keith, Whalen, Skelton, Hatcher, and Cooper. 
I'll just go with those names. Nobody really wants to talk to Pedersen, the guy who invented the Pedersen device. Yeah, I know you're a genius, but, you know, it's not that interesting. Sorry. Um, really don't want to talk to Georg Luger. You know, I know, he's, I know he speaks English because he worked for Sharps, you know, Sharps Borchardt. But, you know, frankly, he invented the Luger, and okay, and that's, that's about as far. Outside of the baby Luger, um, you know, that, that's as far as it went. Uh, there, there were other guys here, there, you know, you could Fedorov, Tokarev, well, Kalishnikov and Stoner, you know, but again, those guys were known for kind of one thing. Um, so I would say Browning really wouldn't want to talk. To, the only reason I would want to talk to Browning, the only reason is I would show him a Browning high power and say, does this look familiar to you? And if he looks at it and goes, well, what the hell is that? Then I would know that he really didn't design as much of it as as kind of lore and history say he did. That it was Diode, Dion, 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 de, oh man, I can't even say it. Dion de Saive, who actually designed it and, and basically changed it so much that Browning wouldn't recognize it. I bet. I bet that if you showed him a Browning high power, you go, "Hey, what is that?" You know, and it probably wouldn't recognize it. I don't know. Might be surprised. No way to know. That'd be the only reason I'd want to have dinner with him because he was. I, I don't know if he was much of a shooter, but he was an inventor, technical, and I don't really want to, you know, listen to talk about long recoil systems and and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, Browning's out. Keith. Keith was not a very educated man, so I think he was probably pretty opinionated and pretty stubborn. So if you want to sit there and listen while this guy just bangs on about how he's a genius and has figured it all out, that's probably probably it. Uh, Whalen was too much of a kind of a you know hunting rifle guy. I'm not really a hunting rifle guy, so I wouldn't find that too interesting. Uh, Skelton, Skelton would be interesting. Skelton would be interesting, but he really kind of just talked about guns that already existed, and, you know, he, he'd probably tell some great stories, even if he made them up, because he was a great fiction writer, and he probably had some true stories. Probably fascinating to listen to his stories, but not so much a person you would have a discussion with. Um, let's see. Oh, what's who's the other one? Bill Jordan. Yeah, Bill Jordan. It would probably end up in a big big deal, but I would have to ask him, did you actually accidentally shoot another Border Patrol agent? Uh, that's, the only, that's the only thing from him I really want to know. Did you actually do that? And if you did, how do you kind of live with yourself afterwards? I mean, yeah, that'd be the only thing I'd want to know from him. Uh, let's see. Cooper. Cooper. Again, a guy who's so opinionated. Probably has some good stories. Totally opinionated. And if you disagree with him, probably going to get an argument. Probably a very intelligent conversationalist. Probably about a lot of other things. He's the kind of guy, if you'd have a disagreement with him, you don't challenge him. You just start talking about something else and just let it go. Plus, he's, he's a, a. The handgun stuff would be great. But the hunting stuff, what I would find kind of boring, you know. Okay, which one, you know, which which is the best rifle for a Z buck, you know? Well, I've never been to Africa, unlike him, who's probably he'd probably been to Africa fifty times or whatever it was. So probably not too interested in Cooper. Julian Hatcher would probably be the winner because he was a gun guy, plus he had a lot of technical knowledge, and he was there. You know, when they were developing the the M1 rifle, he was there. You know, he was also a, a big shooter. He was a, you know, big revolver shooter. He would know the 45 automatic inside and out. He was he kind of spanned from World War One up to about the 1950s, maybe 1960. So he would have had a tremendous breadth of experience probably interesting stories probably you know and I th I'm sure he evaluated a lot of foreign designs too so it'd be interesting to get his take on things like the STG 44 probably would be completely wrong and erroneous but it'd be very interesting to know what he thought of that 
So I think Julian Hatcher would be the, the perfect guy who you could discuss things with and also listen to stories from. The other guys are kind of, you know, one way or the other, you know. Um, so I think Julian Hatcher would be the most interesting guy. And he doesn't get any of the... Um, any of the accolades he deserves. I mean, Hatcher was and is a fantastic writer. He wrote the book of the Garand, where he did, you know he details it all out there, and uh, you know his his books are still really good reading. A lot of them are you know considered kind of basic knowledge to what we know now, but um, very interesting, an educated, well versed, interesting guy. So I think he would be. He would probably be um, the guy who I would choose out of the list of people I can think of. Um, can't really think of anybody else who would be who would be there. So anyway, so my vote goes to Julian Hatcher, and if you've never heard of him, uh, I think you can uh, Google him, and you can certainly look up the Book of the Garand, which is the title by Major General Julian S. Hatcher, and uh, there you go. You'll have it. Anyway, that's the end of our questions. Long set of questions. And that's it for this edition of Old School Guns. Any comments, questions, or whatever else you want to send me, go ahead and send to kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can uh, um, leave the question in the comment section on Podbean, which is our carrier, and we will get to it. So until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.